Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that says, shut up. Die Hard is absolutely a Christmas movie. Here is the captain. Yeah, yippee-ki-yay. Warm it up in the microwave. A nice glass of shut-the-hell-up juice. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are still sipping on something so great. This is a delicious double IPA from Track 7 Brewing Company called Angel of Abomination. I go with the tall pint can, and this is just one of many great beers from the good folks over at Track 7. Check them out. Garage grade on this bad boy, four out of five bottle caps. And here's some cheers to our friends for helping us out with this week's beer run. First up, a cheers to Justin in Sheboygan Falls, Wisconsin. And a big we like your jib to Ann Paul in Asheville, North Carolina. And last but certainly not least, we have Kelly Howell in Conway, Arizona. Thank you all for helping us out with this week's beer run. If you want to help us out with next week's beer fun to fill up the fridge, go to truecrimegarage.com. Click on the donate button. Yeah, B-W-E-W-R-U-N. Festivus for the rest of us. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. At least seven women stabbed and murdered. A series of murders in the Connecticut River Valley. I suspect it was the work of a serial killer. All were stabbed multiple times. Times. That's why I'm here, to look for results, to have results, to give those families an answer. When we left off yesterday, Captain, we had gone through all of the victims, the ones that are believed to be connected to this Connecticut River Valley killer, and the ones that are debatable. We went into some of the evidence. We went into the great debate of if, in fact, one individual is responsible for all of these murders or 
do we have a situation where we may have a couple people that are involved in some of these homicides here working unrelated to one another. And one thing that's troubling when we start to look at suspects in any of these types of cases, we start to see a weird pattern that there's a lot of bad dudes that seem to be in one area during the course of just a handful of years. And that's always terrifying to learn. So we'll go through the suspects that have been listed or named throughout the years in connection to the Connecticut River Valley killer. One suspect was Christopher Wilder. Now, this is a known serial killer. He killed in the area, but not he's not likely, in my opinion, to have been the River Valley killer. We know that he abducted and raped at least 12 young women and girls. He tortured some of them and killed at least eight of his victims. But this took place all within a short six-week time period when he went off the rails and he went on this cross-country crime spree in the United States in early 1984. So his series of murders began in Florida on February 26, 1984, and then continued across the country through Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Nevada, and California. And he had attempted abductions in Washington state and New York state before he was eventually tracked down and killed during a struggle with police in New Hampshire. Now he's killed by police in New Hampshire on April 13th, 1984. So when you just factor in those dates, now there, there are people that suspect that he may have killed before he went on this six weeks, this six week long crime spree that led to many other victims. He's not in the New Hampshire area until he's tracked down by police when he's killed there in 1984. That also means that he would not have even been alive for some of the later attacks. Yeah, this guy's a real douche canoe ship princess, but it's hard to put him in that region during the times of those killings. Our next suspect is Edwin Town. He was looked at big time in a couple of these cases. This guy was no doubt a killer. Now, I don't know about Edwin being a serial killer. He may have been one in the making, in my opinion, but he certainly was a serial rapist. He is one of these horrible true stories where you hear that this dude gets out of prison and then he goes out and commits another horrible, violent crime. This guy, unfortunately, he's one of these dudes, man, that he was locked up. He had been arrested for a sexual assault, got in trouble. They knew that he did it. Then he goes out, he gets out of prison, goes out and commits another sexual assault. They arrest him. They throw him back in prison. He's supposed to be doing this lengthy prison sentence because he's a repeat offender. He's a violent offender. Right. And they let him out early. And then unfortunately, when he's out, he abducted a teenage girl and, and killed her. The victim's father, rightfully so, has been up front and center for all media pointing out time and time again, look, if this guy, if Edwin Town would have been forced to serve out his time to the sentence that, that was granted to him, he would have been locked up at the time that he abducted and killed my daughter. And so this one's, as much as Edwin Town is to blame, 
so is the parole board and the people that let him back out on the streets. Yeah, this is a huge stain on our justice system, and it makes it look pretty pathetic. Next on our suspect list, Captain, we have Delbert Tallman. Tallman, on May 20th, 1984, is suspected of having abducted 16-year-old Heidi Martin, who went out for a jog in Heartland, Vermont. The next day, her body was found in a swampy area behind Heartland Elementary School. She had been raped and stabbed to death. Tallman, who was 21 years old at the time, after he's picked up, Captain, he confesses to the rape and murder. And then he's brought to trial. However, he later recants his confession and then gets an acquittal. Now, nearly three years later, Barbara Agnew's body would be found approximately one mile from where Heidi Martin's body was discovered. So in the, the general, same general area, Tallman was a resident in Bellows Falls, Springfield, and Windsor, Vermont, as well as Claremont, New Hampshire. This is the epicenter of most of the Connecticut River Valley killings. He was later convicted in 1996 on two counts of lewd and lascivious conduct with a child and was incarcerated at Lake County Prison in Florida for failure to comply with sex offender registration requirements. He was released from prison in 2010. Yeah, it makes you wonder how they got that confession. Uh, I'd like to dive more into that. It definitely does, but his later crimes would back up the thought that, yes, he should be a suspect in that Heidi Martin case. Right. Now, if you want to look at victimology and say, well, this killer, this River Valley killer likely would, would hone in on a certain type of victim, well, Heidi Martin doesn't seem to fit that victimology to a T anyway. And if his later crimes are any indication of who he is and what kind of monster he was, then his preferred victimology seems to be younger people, right. children. And he's acting on this. If he was guilty of the Heidi Martin case, he's, he's acting at a, at the young age of 21. So he's one of these people just like the other two, where you can certainly put him on the list. There's good reason to put him on the list as a suspect in this case, but I think where you probably have to lean with Tallman is that you can't eliminate him. I can see reasons why to eliminate Christopher Wilder. He likely wasn't even in the area. He wasn't even alive when some of the killings took place. Right. Edwin Town looks better than Wilder. Tallman looks better than both of them. Yeah, and like you said, if 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 his victimology, if the victims that he is looking for is, is of a younger age, then it doesn't make sense to me that this individual would be driving around as much as they would have to because look i guarantee you and i i don't know what the percentage would be but i guarantee you they're driving around and going to these spots and looking for opportunities a lot more they're visiting those locations a lot more than they're actually finding opportunities and finding victims and just how much driving could this person be doing if we do in fact have one individual that's responsible for the majority of these killings. You take a, a serial killer like William Suff, for example, he was driving around and trolling for victims so much, putting so many miles on his vehicle that they said that he had to replace anywhere between three to six tires a year on his vehicle. Wow. So all of us just think, think to our own personal lives on how long it is between times when you have to put two or four more tires on 
your car. This dude and likely whoever's responsible for a lot of these killings in, in Connecticut River Valley, they're changing out a tire almost every other month. Right. Because they're putting so many miles on their vehicle. They're spending so much time, so much time of their each day, each week trolling around looking for a victim. For every one of these victims, this is fortunately and unfortunately all at the same time. For every one of these victims that we've named here today, there's likely four or five, maybe more that for whatever reason he decided not to take a chance on. Right. Either he attempted to get him into his vehicle or he pulled up and was getting ready to do something, but somebody else pulled up and he was interrupted. There's any number of reasons why other victims didn't look good enough or the time just wasn't right to, to take them and make them a victim. One of the more popular suspects here, Captain, is a man by the name of Michael Nicolau. He is incredibly interesting to me. He's one of these guys that... That's a giant pile of shit that we should light on fire. I'm convinced this guy was a serial killer. And crimes that we know that he he did will back a lot of that thinking up. So in 2005, he kills his wife and his stepdaughter and himself in Tampa, Florida. A St. Petersburg private investigator comes out, says that she is certain that there's a connection between Michael Nicolau and to six homicide victims from the Connecticut River Valley case. The problem with Nicolau is his residence was in Holyoke, which was about 90 miles from Claremont. Yeah, not so fast. Now, this PI, this private investigator, was able to determine that his wife, one of his wives, uh, her, her name was Michelle, had relatives in this area. That might explain some of the gaps in the killings. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Do we potentially have a killer that is operating in this area, but only when he is in the area and that he's not there all of the time? Right. This is an interesting thought to ponder because one, we got this guy that we know is capable of homicide. He kills his wife. He kills his stepdaughter and then kills himself. This is all during the course of a police standoff. But it goes a little more psychotic than just a, a, this guy losing his mind and taking his wife and stepdaughter hostage, and then in, in the course of a standoff, he kills them. No, he traveled to Tampa to do this to his wife. He traveled to Tampa. They had been separated. He went down there with the purpose of harming and likely with the purpose of killing her and her daughter. He then kills himself. We know that this private investigator was able to create, to link ties to the Claremont area where the epicenter of these killings were taking place. Well, and we don't know what she learned about him. Is it possible that she learned something awful about him and that that was the straw that broke the camel's back and he decided that they had to die and that he had to die as well? What's weird about him, though, his first wife disappeared she's never been seen again well surprise surprise do we have a situation where these marriages are getting in the way of doing what it is that he wants to do the thing that's really interesting about him too is that michael nicolau owned a jeep wagoneer in the 1980s which is consistent with the vehicle described by the living the surviving victim jane baroski yeah, which we'll get into more details on her attack in a little bit. 
one of the thoughts that the profiler put together, Captain, was that is there a potential that this guy travels for work, either only kills when he's home because he lives in the area or only kills when he's out traveling in the area? I've reviewed at least one other killer, and I'm sure that there are probably more out there. Well, no, duh. There's more than one killer out there, you genius. But there's one killer that I reviewed, and his name escapes me at the moment, but he is suspected of three homicides, convicted of one, and confessed to another. So within those three, he's been convicted of one, and he's confessed to one of the others. They can't lock him down for the third one, but... He didn't live in the area, but he traveled to the area regularly and he chose to make that his hunting ground because the problem for the investigators became that this guy's not local. He doesn't live in the area. He's not easily, it's not easy to link him to that area for when these victims disappear or when they're later found. Right. And like you said, this guy lived roughly 90 miles away. That's not that far of a drive, especially if he has time and he has the means to get out and chooses to hunt outside of an area where he lives with the purpose of making it much more difficult to detect him as the actual killer. So like you said, there's a great debate whether these cases are connected or they're not. And in a lot of these cases, we just don't have a lot of details We don't have eyewitnesses, but we have a possible case that is connected to the rest of them, but we have a surviving victim. And I was able to sit down with Jane Borowski to go over the events, the terrifying, horrible events of the attack, which led to her being named, being dubbed the the surviving victim of the Connecticut River Valley. Uh, seven months pregnant. I was just uh, looking forward to being a mom. I decided to go to a fair. Where I lived is also a small community, um, and they have a, a county fair every year in Swansea, New Hampshire. So I went to the fair. It was hot, hot and humid that summer. It was brutal. Driving home from the fair, I met up with Evil. I stopped off at a closed store, it was it was right on a main route from uh, Keene to Winchester. I was living in Winchester at the time, and uh, Route Ten. I stopped at this closed store because they had a vending machine outside, a soda vending machine. So I just wanted to stop and, and grab a quick soda on my way home. And then you're met with this horrible experience, and this terrible man approaches your vehicle. You know, I hate to kind of try to crawl into the mind of this individual, but I really want everybody to fully understand the situation and how everything played out. So you pull into this closed door with the intention of, Hey, I'm going to grab something to drink. Is it dark out at this time? Yeah, it was fairly late. It was, um, you know, between 11 and 1130 at night, the fair had just closed. Yeah. I pulled in, I grabbed my soda out of the soda vending machine, got back in my car I opened the soda, took a couple of sips, and I was getting ready to pull out to head home. This Jeep Wagoneer pulled up beside me on my passenger side, and I didn't think anything of it. It was, you know, 
there there was the vending machine and there was also a payphone next to the vending machine. So I really didn't think anything of it. I was getting ready to leave and I see him walking around the back of my car. And next thing I know, he's at my driver's door and, and he says, um, the payphone working. And right as he said that, he opened the door and tried to grab me and take me out of the car. I was so scared. I was screaming. I was fighting. Um, I screamed so much and so hard that I broke blood vessels in my eyes. Somehow I got my foot up to kick him. And I was kicking him. And as I was kicking him, I kicked my windshield and smashed my windshield. Next thing I know, he takes a knife out and he said, maybe this will persuade you to get out of the car. So obviously it did. I got out of the car. He was just acting so calm. Like he wanted me to go with him. That was, that was obvious. He wanted me to go with him. And I was determined I was not going with him. He had said that I beat up his girlfriend and said that my car was a Massachusetts car. And, and I was like, no, I didn't beat up no girlfriend. And, uh, my car is New Hampshire. My car has New Hampshire plates. And at this time, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this guy's a whack job. What What the hell? What does he want? You know, I, I just couldn't understand. He started walking around the backside of my car. At that time, I didn't feel threatened anymore. I thought maybe he just confused me with somebody else. He looked at the plate, and then he started walking back to his vehicle on the other side of my car. And I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute. I have a smashed windshield. So, of course, not feeling threatened, I said to him, hey, asshole, what about my windshield? You know, I regret those words for the rest of my life, but I, I didn't feel threatened. So he came back around and put the knife up against my neck. You had no way of knowing what you were dealing with in that moment. You think you're just, this is some guy, he, he mistook me for somebody that probably got into some kind of situation with his girlfriend. He's angry. He approached you. Either he figured out you're the wrong person or, you know, you have no idea who this guy is in the, in that moment. And then it sounds like you pissed him off. I, I didn't know what he was capable of doing. I, I had no idea what, why he was even there or why he was approaching me. I mean, this is a small community, uh, Swansea, New Hampshire, virtually no major crime in 1988, a safe community. And don't forget, back then in 1988, there was no cell phones. There was no social media. I didn't know about these other cases. I didn't know that there was a serial killer hunting New Hampshire and Vermont. I had no idea. So when he came back around the car and he put the knife up against my neck, I, I saw a vehicle start driving, was driving by the store. And I knew the only way I was going to get out of that situation was to run to the road and scream and try and get their attention. So I did. I just dashed. I, I started running to the road. I was screaming and the car just went right by. Next thing I know, he tackled me down on the ground like a football player, like, right on the pavement. And he got on top of me. I was on my back. 
And he just proceeded to stab me, like just was just stabbing uncontrollably. I ultimately was stabbed 27 times and I was doing everything I could to protect my baby. So I have a lot of defensive wounds on my hands. All of a sudden he just stopped stabbing and he got up and he walked away and I could hear him walking away, like not running or anything like that, just walking away. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I can't believe this just happened for one. And I'm like, where is he? You know, I couldn't see him. I heard the vehicle start and start driving. By this time, I I knew I needed to get help. So I got on, I rolled over onto my hands and knees and I started getting up and I, I could just hear the, the, the blood just gushing out of me. I happened to look up and he just drove right by and looked right at me and I looked right at him. But he didn't rush. It was just a slow drive by my head. And then he drove off. I, obviously, my body went into shock and I just knew I needed to get help. So uh, I had a friend of mine that lived right on that main road, Route 10, about two miles down the road. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to his house and he's going to get me help. So I got in my car. I started driving down the road. And before I knew it, I was driving right behind him. And I was like, oh, my God, he's going to know where I'm going to pull off. He's going to see where I'm pulling in. And I just um, fear all over again. I pulled into my friend's house and... And he came right to the screen door and uh, he said that, uh, I told him, I said, some asshole just stabbed the shit out of me. I need help. And I collapsed on his steps. And then a few minutes later, well, not even a few minutes later, a minute later, all of a sudden we hear the vehicle drive back by the house and like squealed its tires, like almost slamming on his brakes and then took off. So we, we knew, we know it was him. Um, he definitely knew that I would. I was at somebody's house getting help. Your attacker is aware that you survived the attack. Is he aware that, to your knowledge, best to your knowledge anyway, is he aware that you survived the attack before he leaves the parking lot of the closed store? Well, he knows that I was getting up. I was trying to get up and, and you know, get to my car. And I believe he knows I was behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise he would have never turned around and came back. When you were in the parking lot, did you see, when did you become aware of the other vehicle? Did, do you, do you see him pull in or are you only aware once he pulls up next to your car? Yeah, pretty much when he pulled in and parked right next to me. I mean, like I said, I I didn't really pay much attention to it. The soda machine was there. A payphone was there. He just uh, pulled in and parked next to my car on my drive on my passenger side. Did you see which direction he came from? Did he pull in from the same direction that you were coming from, or or I didn't. Okay. I, I never noticed that. Just describe the vehicle for everybody out there. These uh, vehicle, and I know we're we're talking about this well after the fact. You know, we're we're many years later, yeah. and um, but vehicle description, suspect description, those things are are very important. It was a, they believe about a 1985 Jeep Wagoneer. It had wood grain sides. Mm-hmm. Um, now, according to the lighting in the parking lot, because they were like fluorescent lighting, 
it was either a dark blue or a dark green. It was four wheel drive. He was like, uh, not too awfully tall, maybe five, nine, five, eight, five, nine slender. He, his, uh, he had kind of a brownish hair, um, slick back. Um, while I was in the hospital, I actually did a composite of. Yeah, them. there's one that's been out for a long time, and I was going to wonder. I was wondering, yeah. are, are you responsible for the the one the one that I remember the most when looking into this case years ago is the one with the 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 dark kind of circles around the eyes. Uh, there's there's yeah. more than one composite out there for this case, but the one that I remember is kind of the short short hair, dark colored hair. The, uh, you know, the wrinkles across the forehead and the dark around the eyes. Slender face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's two of them. There's one for the Linda, Linda Moore case. That one, he was wearing uh, glasses and a hoodie. And fluorescent lights, they have a tendency at nighttime to make a, a, a black or blue vehicle appear to be that green color. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And so he approaches you and what is, I mean, it's not mind blowing now knowing that this, your attack is likely connected to all these, all these other cases, but what's kind of mind blowing in the heat of the moment is with the way you describe this to me, he says something to you that's smoke and mirrors. That's the old magician trick, right? Because it's, it's human nature when somebody speaks to you to look toward their face, which is going to draw your attention away from what he really wants to do, which is get that latch on your car door open before you have a time, time to react to that. Oh, and, exactly. And so that to me tells me one of two things or both that this guy, one has done this type of thing before, or he's practiced to do this type of thing. Um, and, but for whatever reason, and we, we will never know until he's caught, but for whatever reason you survive this attack because he leaves, uh, you, you know, and, and as you said, we believe he doesn't think that he's killed you at this point when he, de when he decides to leave or do you, I believe I survived because I didn't go with him. He really wanted me to go with him. And like the other victims of the Connecticut River Valley murders, they all went with him, whether it was willingly or he, they, he forced them to go with him. But they, except for Linda Moore, they all went, went with him. So I believe if I, if I had gone with, with him, I would not be alive. I, I wholeheartedly believe that. yeah the the thing here to just describe him again i know you, you gave a good description but i really want to hone in on on what this guy looked like uh back in august of 1988 it's hard for me to describe because i mean it was 34 right. years ago you know i i can i can remember his manner how he carried himself which was very cool and very calm and not nervous I, I believe he's done this before, before me. Not his first rodeo. That's and for obviously sure. you're. I mean, you're fighting for your life. You're. You're. The adrenaline kicks in. You're not so much paying attention to him and taking notes on what he he looks like. But was there anything in particular that was uh, that that stood out to you about him and his his appearance or his clothing or anything that you th was very distinctive? Well, I remember 
way back when the detectives were questioning me and when I was hypnotized, he had no smell to him. So he wasn't a dirty man. He didn't have any body odor smell or anything like that, which was unusual, especially being um, such a hot, humid summer. So they felt like he was um, obviously a, a clean person. I don't remember him. I, I remember him wearing dark clothing, but exactly what kind of dark clothing, I really don't remember. See, I wish I had paid attention to these details at the time. But again, I didn't realize what he was going to do. There's a lot of little details I wish I remembered, uh, but I don't. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. And customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Terrifying stuff there, Captain. Thank you to Jane Borowski for sitting down with us and, and educating us and giving her insights and in, in what actually happened to her that, that terrifying evening. Now, Borowski mentioned returning to her car and then driving on New Hampshire Route 32. She's now fleeing to a friend's house for help after this attack. As she gets close to the house, now we have this, it's like straight out of a horror flick. Oh my God. I I'm right behind the vehicle of the person that just attacked me, that just tried to kill me. 
She then gets to her friend's house. The friend comes running out to, to aid her. She's barely able to walk at this point. And this is, she says her attacker apparently made a U-turn and then drives slowly past her and her friend staring them down before speeding off into the dark of night. Yes. So when you hear this part of the story and when I heard this part of the story, it makes it seem like maybe the attacker knew that this could be his victim and maybe that she was still alive. I don't think that at all. If we connect all these cases, and I think there's a strong argument that you can because it's crimes of opportunity. It's a killer in his vehicle driving around hunting, looking at stores, looking for people broke down on the side of the road, looking for hitchhikers, looking for anybody that's vulnerable. He's driving away from this attack. He is miles away from the attack. A car drives is driving behind him. This is also these areas that these huntings, that the hunting is taking place in, they're remote. There's not a bunch of cars all the time. The time of day, there's not a ton of vehicles out. So he sees a vehicle turn off into a drive. And I think this was just another thing that he did. Another way of hunting. Okay, I'm going to make a U-turn because this car just turned off into their driveway. I'm going to drive back and drive back slowly to see if there's an opportunity. And then once I look, he might not even known it was the same vehicle. He might not have known that it was a, a female driver, but once he sees more than one person, he drives away. And I think that just proves that all these cases, the victimology in these cases don't really matter too much to me because I think the more important thing is when he's out there hunting and having these urges that when there was an opportunity that seemed there's no other cars coming in, like you said, how many other victims would there be if a car didn't pull up, another car didn't pull up? Or maybe that when they saw somebody at the payphone, when they pulled up to to put themselves into a better opportunity to commit this crime, that they saw multiple people in the car waiting on the person that's making the phone call. I think it's more about that they, they didn't see the killer come back because he thought it was the victim. I think he was looking for another victim. Yeah, you could certainly make a, a strong argument for both sides of the fence here, right? We we know that with other killers, that when they set out to do something, a lot of them have to do that. They have to achieve that before they are done hunting for the day. We know that to be the case in several other serial killers. So we have the experts here who say, all right, well, if... Jane Borowski's case is in fact connected to these other ones. Well, it's only different. The result is only different and circumstances are only different from some of the other attacks and the other victims because the killer must have been interrupted. 
So you're exactly right, Captain. If these experts are correct and he was, in fact, interrupted and was aware that he had not killed this victim that he found in the parking lot, was his dark passenger, his factor X, not satiated? Was it was he not able to get that thrill that he was seeking that night? And was he trolling for another victim? And happens to see this vehicle and thinks, oh, they turned in there. I'll see where they turned into and how vulnerable they look as they're getting out of their vehicle. And then realizes, oh, no, that's the the woman that I attacked and she did survive and then drives off. The other thing, though, too, the other argument for that for against it would be Jane's description of that night where she says, oh, the first car she comes in contact with she is very aware that it's the it's the vehicle of the man who just attacked her. So we know that she's close enough to identify his vehicle. Right. And even though they were only together for a brief period of time in that parking lot together, she was well aware of what kind of vehicle he was driving. He very likely as well. She was close enough for him to identify her vehicle. And he, he has his oh shit moment. I've got to turn around. She pulled in. I'm going to finish the job. And now as he's slowing down to get a look at what's going on, he realizes there's somebody else there. This is a safe place for Jane. And I can't go into further risk by by attempting to attack both of these people now. I'm better off to just drive off. One thing that I thought was amazing in her case and, and terrifying, this was one of the things that stuck with me from being a little boy watching that Unsolved Mysteries. When they show that reenactment of her hypnosis session, where she's saying she's trying to see the license plate, the rear license plate of her attacker. And this as portrayed on unsolved mysteries would have been from when she pulled up from behind, he's already fleeing this, the scene where he attempted to kill her. She survives. She's fleeing, trying to get help for herself. And then she sees the, the attacker's vehicle sees his license plate. He's trying, she's trying to make it out. But in that hypnosis reenactment, she says, the the license plate is dirty. Okay, well, a Wagoneer is a vehicle that you could have taken off-road. You could see, given the terrain off of some parts of Interstate 91, that, yeah, you could have muddy tires or, or dirty vehicles or vehicles that appear to have been off-roading. But I remember as a kid thinking, how scary is that? It's very likely that this dude simply, at some point, stuck his hand in mud or a puddle and rubbed it on the back of his license plate because he knew he was going out trolling. He knew he was going to be out doing some very suspicious, committing some very suspicious behavior. And any deterrent from people being able to identify him as that person is in his favor. Right. Or is this guy a sick son of a bitch and wipes his own ass with his own hand, then uses his little shit hand to cover up his license plate? I mean, it's possible. Thankfully, Jane survived, as we all are well aware from the interview there. But and I, and I say that chuckling, not uh, just because it's silly for for me to lead in that way. But I do want to get into some of the some of the details here because it's it's important. The devil is in the details. Her life was saved that night by herself and by her friend and by personnel at the hospital where she was later treated. Right. This was a horrific attack. She suffered a severed jugular vein, two collapsed lungs, 
a kidney laceration and severed tendons in her knees and in her thumb. She's pregnant at the time. And fortunately, God bless her baby survived, although with not without complications. What we do get, though, is Jane is able to provide authorities with a composite sketch. And then later, the first three characters of the attacker's license plate. There are many that believe, given the manner of her attack, the weapon being a knife and the location in which it took place, that Jane's case is absolutely connected to some of these other cases. I personally believe that it's connected to some of these other cases, too. And I say that simply because of the nature of the attack, the vending machine and the payphone. And I know that sounds silly, but we cannot discredit the fact that in two of the other cases, there is a payphone. Now, we know that Jane didn't use the payphone, but to me, it it is almost mesmerizing. And in some forms, possibly even brilliant if that was purposely done. In the reenactment on Unsolved Mysteries, and again, it's just a reenactment, that we, we don't know how much truth is in that. It, we can't say that it 100% went down that way. But when the attacker asks her about the phone, is that payphone working? That's, and then immediately opens up her car door. That's almost like a magician's trick, a little sleight of hand, right? I'll start talking so your eyes, your eyes move up to my face, up to my mouth where the words are coming out. And in the meantime, I'm using, I'm, I'm moving my hand toward that car door, which you do not want me opening up that car door. I've taken your attention off of the car door and now away from my hands. The other thing that's almost brilliant too is, was that just a very simple way of figuring out very quickly, had she called anybody? Right. Because if, and again, I think in some of these cases, there's evidence to suggest that maybe the victim's vehicle was moved. If he intended to abduct her from there before she puts up a struggle, he may have intended to go back and move her vehicle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But you don't really, yeah, you don't really want to do that or you don't need to do that, I guess, if somebody is already aware that you were in this location. Hey, does that payphone work? She says, I don't know. She doesn't know because she didn't use it. That might be good intel for the attacker. Originally, shortly after her attack, we have a big shift in the investigation. Now we have with this with this composite sketch and with her statements and police believing that she would be able to identify her attacker should we place him in a lineup. They're now very optimistic that they're finally going to be able to bring closure to potentially some of these other cases. Well, the vehicle that she describes is a Jeep Wagoneer. And she doesn't describe it as a beat-up vehicle. And so, again, you're in this area. You're hunting for victims. You see people that are, that are hitchhiking. If you have a nicer vehicle, they're more likely to get in the car. And also, that type of vehicle, not hard if you attack somebody at one location that you're able then to move them pretty quickly. It's, it's not like it's a two-door sports car and it'd be difficult to get a victim in and out this is this is a vehicle that has a has a big hatchback if you commit a crime somewhere else you can take that body and put it in the hatchback drive down the road and then 
quickly get them out of the vehicle as well. She described the attacker as driving a Jeep Wagoneer with faux wood paneling. And that that is more concrete than this portion. Because we have the hypnosis session, which leads to her stating that the three of the numbers on the license plate were likely six, six, and two. And she also states that it's possible that the license plate was from New Hampshire. Again, I think you put the the heavy weighted material and evidence here is the Jeep Wagoneer with the faux wood paneling. She seems certain on that. The 662 on the plate and potential New Hampshire plate, a lot less credible, although all she's trying to do is help. Now, she goes on to describe the attacker as being blonde with thinning hair and had a narrow face and was between 5'7", maybe 5'8", 150 to 160 pounds. One thing that was interesting to me here, Captain, was I always thought of this type of vehicle as rather unique. Um, you know, not certainly not one of a kind, but more rare than than more commonly driven vehicles. Yeah. But we have information here that police armed with this information from Borowski from her attack, they tracked down 1600 Wagoneers that were in the larger area here, and they were unable to connect one of them to Jane's attack. And it would appear that the killings stopped following Jane Borowski's attack. And then as we pointed out earlier in our coverage, a lot of these cases, if not all of them, have become very cold since. That's a good, difficult thing, too, because with some of these killers, we see that they wrestle with this demon themselves. And is it possible that this serial killer was wrestling with these demons and then by realizing that one of his victims got away and that she was able to identify him. Now there's a sketch out there. Now the identity of my car is out there. Is that enough for this person to try to put that part of their life behind them? And not only put that part of their life behind them, but if they weren't even local to the area. Right and chose this as their hunting and their killing ground, maybe they then say, you know what? It's gotten too risky. It's gotten a little hot here for me. I I need to move on and pick another area, start operations up in another location. Well, and what I would like to know too, is out of those vehicles that you were able to identify as law enforcement, which of those vehicles were sold? Because I could see somebody going, well, I was identified. My vehicle was identified I'm going to sell this vehicle. You'd also like to know the details of the tracking down 1600 Wagoneers. Right. What does that in fact mean? Does that just simply mean, oh, we, we, we got a pulled up records on 1600 Wagoneers and none of them had a 662 license plate. So we, we moved on. Or does that mean boots on the ground actually going out and talking to the owners and looking at the vehicles? Yeah, the other difficult thing in this case, and it was talked, I think, a little bit. I mean, I I watched so many different things on this case, and like we said, it was on Unsolved Mysteries. But I believe at some point, Jane claims that she 
believe that she she knew the identity of her killer. Yes, and she cleared that up when I spoke with her because what had happened over the course of some years was Michael Nicolau, the man that killed his wife, his stepdaughter, and then himself in December of 2005. And keep in mind, his first wife had disappeared. He suspected for being responsible for her disappearance. And many believe that that he killed her and is able to tuck her away somewhere that nobody's been able to locate her remains. At one point, Jane does identify Michael Nicolau as the man that attacked her that night. And for a lot of people, that was the final solution. Okay, case closed. This guy that killed himself is responsible for a lot of these, if not all of these homicides that went unsolved and responsible for the Jane Borowski attack. There are several people that think Michael Nicolau is good for all of these. I think there's a good chance that he he could be responsible for some of them. But Jane says, look, she changed her mind later that Michael Nicolau was not the man that she saw that night. And she says that she simply felt pressured by other people to name him as her attacker. And she did name him and she faults herself, but she says, look, I was vulnerable and I felt a little bullied and I felt pressured to name him as my attacker. And she said that for maybe a portion of her life, she even believed it herself or convinced herself that Michael Nicolau was her attacker. She now says all of these years later, no, it was not Michael Nicolau that attacked her that night. When you can't fault her for anything because the amount of trauma that she went through with the attack and then after the attack and again, lucky to be able to deliver her child, but then her child has repercussions of the attack and then, and what your life must be after something. I mean, could you imagine she stopped to get something to drink on her way home? No big deal. And within that small time frame, she is confronted with a monster. The fact that she can even get up and get out of her house ever is is a, is a huge win. Because I, I don't know how somebody could go through that and find the strength to, to trust society again. Well, and that's what's so terrifying when you review these number of cases as it, that we just did in this coverage of this Connecticut River Valley killer. Whether or not these attacks are connected, it's terrifying to review it because you can go, all right, well, three of the victims were hitchhiking. And not to victim blame here, but every one of us does this when you review these things. You go, okay, well, it's not very safe. That's a dangerous thing to be getting into a stranger's car especially if you're a woman out walking on a road by yourself or you're in an area that you're not familiar with. But in Jane's case, it's likely a a pregnant craving that nudged her to stop and pick up a soda on the way home. She's just minding her own business. She's just a young woman living her, her normal life. And then out of nowhere, she's attacked in a parking lot and damn near killed. There is a lot of work. And, and one thing that is good in this case, Captain, it has received a good amount of coverage. There are a lot of websites out there that are dedicated or devoted space to 
the investigation and into some of the information in this case. And it's been covered fairly well on TV as well. And in the media, there is a profile out there. And again, depending on where you go, you're going to get various forms of this profile, but I'll give you the simple version, which states that the killer is a loner. Now to really kind of dissect that statement, you look at somebody like Dennis Rader he would have been considered a loner as well, even though he had a wife, children, he was active in his community, at his church, he was involved with the Boy Scouts. You look at that and you go, well, this guy's not really much of a loner, this Dennis Rader. But when you really start to peel back the layers of the onion and you get to the core of Dennis Rader, you realize that while he's out doing these other activities, it's a facade. He's only he's only pretending to be the guy that you know, the friendly neighbor the active Boy Scout troop leader, the person that's involved in their church. He's that he knows that he needs to pretend to do that. All of his true self is experienced through lone activities, through solitary individual activities. He's trolling around for hours by himself in his car. He's fantasizing about killing and torturing people for hours by himself. This dude, Dennis Rader even would go, to a hotel and check in and spend the night by himself just to have a night to himself. That's how much of a loner he was with putting on the act of being normal. Well, and I think Dennis, Dennis's case is not unique in the fact that see some people close to him knew a little bit about these demons. And because of that, I think is is another reason why he was involved in his church so heavenly because then it the facade is maybe not just to society but the facade is to the people closest to him. The profile goes on to state that these are calculated attacks that the killer has attention to detail and and routine and is likely a collector. That's interesting because where we have these cases and many of them, there's no signs of sexual assault. What we've been told for years by the expert is that by the experts is that a knife is certainly representative of a psychological sexual assault. And that a lot of times when there's no sexual assault present by these serial offenders, that they are collectors they take something of the victim and it is a sexual component. There always is a sexual component to the killings. I think with some of these cases, it gets incredibly difficult to deduce exactly what happened because of the decomposition, because the amount of time between the victim was abducted and then the remains later found. Well, yeah. And again, I know I keep harping on this point, but these are all crimes of opportunity. Mm-hmm. So therefore, in one case, there could be an opportunity. The, the crime, the crime starts, it evolves, and maybe then there's an opportunity for sexual assault or rape. And in some of the other cases, there there wasn't. And so I think that's what makes it so difficult to figure out if these cases are connected. Because, like we said, you can make an argument. Well, the, the ages are different. Their backgrounds are different. But to me, 
that all goes out in the wash and it's the hunting ground. Are they within that hunting ground? And if they are, then the, it's a possibility that it's the same killer. The killer in their normal life will experience outbursts of rage, will have strange relationships with women or the inability to have real, true relationships with women. His father was either abusive or absent. His violence shows he could be recreating an early experience or reacting to an early life experience. A lot of times with these serial killers, you see that they have multiple wives. Well, that's one, a sign that they can't keep a long-term relationship. And I think sometimes these people get married. Again, like you said, it's a facade. You start to see the real person once you live with them and spend that amount of time with them. And they can only keep up the act for so long. And you're right. He may have the ability to get himself into a relationship with an adult woman. He just does not have the ability to maintain that relationship. The killer will have a history of voyeurism. This is one that you... Any type of serial offender, especially if there's a sexual component, you're going to see some kind of voyeuristic behavior before the killings start. It's all, I mean, you can almost slap this on every single one of them because you see it time and time again that either this would be a peeping Tom situation or exposing themselves to someone. We've seen it time and time again where there are these types of behaviors that lead up to eventually murder or a series of murder. This suspect is reliant on his car or vehicle and spends a lot of time, a lot of hours on the road. That is just echoing what we've been saying all along when we look at this victimology here. The suspect spends so much time driving that driving is a form of therapy or self-hypnosis for him. Again, just backing up what we were saying earlier. In the book Shadow of Death, The Hunt for the Connecticut River Valley Killer by Philip Ginsburg, he creates this book. He wrote this book with a lot of help from psychologist John Philpin, who is the one that is featured on Unsolved Mysteries. Now, John, in the book Shadow of Death, gives a very, a much more extensive and thorough suspect profile in chapter 23. The profile takes up the entirety of the chapter. I recommend checking out that book, especially that chapter, as it's very interesting if you are, if you find yourself eyeballs deep in this case and want to learn more. One thing that I thought was intriguing here, Captain, was an editorial in the Claremont paper that I think, while it's quite elementary, it sums up this killer very well and, in fact, sums up many serial killers out there. And it reads as follows. He's a man who took the innocent at random and killed without reason and then went hunting for the opportunity to do it again. These cases are always going to be debated whether they're connected or not until we solve one. And that might then lead us to be able to connect the other cases together or eliminate them from being connected together. Also in these cases, Captain, the cases, not just that we talked about here today in the garage, But cases that are serial killer cases, we usually throw out the possibility of a deathbed confession, and rarely do we ever get one. Sometimes you have confessions of evil men once they are caught, 
They come clean with investigators. Dennis Rader comes to mind, Ted Bundy, even though he lied a lot. And even one of Texas's most evil of all time, Kenneth McDuff. They come out, they tell you about additional victims. They tell you how to find victims. They tell you what they did and how they did it. One such deathbed confession, a lesser known one, was a case that we covered, the still missing person case of Judy Martins. We discussed a deathbed confession there, not in Judy's case, but connected to her case when William Posey finally admitted to abducting and killing Iris Brown in 1981. He admitted this in a deathbed confession. The Judy Martin's case is very intriguing, and anyone that wants to give that a good garage listen, check out our two episodes, numbers 522 and 523, titled Missing on Campus. So those are just a few examples of how such confessions in cases that we've covered come about. And with the William Posey confession, very much a deathbed confession. He was terminal and wanted to try to fully confess his sins in an attempt to get right with God before dying. So while it's rare, deathbed confessions do actually happen, and and we have one in this case, believe it or not. Now, Ben Montgomery wrote a beautiful piece for the St. Petersburg Times, now owned by Tampa Bay Times, but his story was so masterfully told and in a very story-like manner, so I didn't want to change it up too much here. So let's review and explore Ben's story. And it starts off with, I'm going to hell, Cindy. I'm going to hell. Gary Westover was pale and sweating. Maybe he was on drugs. Maybe the nightmares that robbed him of sleep that caused him to wake up screaming and soaking wet were now robbing his mind. Westover was full of hell and fire. He had been paralyzed in a driving accident, leaving him with partial use of one arm. He lived his adult life in a wheelchair collecting disability checks, and peddling drugs on the side. The leaves outside were changing that fall of 1997, and Westover felt as if he wasn't going to make it to winter. The 46-year-old was dying. He called his uncle, the person he trusted most. He needed to confess. His cousin and uncle sat down. His cousin took his hand. I'm going to hell, Westover said. Don't say that, Gary, said his cousin, Cindy. I've got something to tell you, Uncle Howard, he said. Uncle Howard was Howard Minnan, a retired sheriff's deputy in Grafton County, New Hampshire. Before Westover could continue, his Uncle Howard told Cindy to leave the room. The two men spoke while the women of the family waited in the kitchen. When Uncle Howard emerged, his face was cold and stiff. In the following days, he shared the details of the conversation with his wife and daughter. Westover told his uncle that three of his buddies picked him up for a night of partying. They loaded his wheelchair into a van. They insisted that he go with them so that he was culpable, recalled his aunt. His Aunt Louise goes on to say, quote, he had no choice, but they took him over in the van with his wheelchair. They made him be there, end quote. Westover told his uncle that he and three men abducted a woman, butchered her, and dumped her body off a back road. His uncle wrote the names of the three men on a scrap of paper, then called the authorities. His family goes on to back him up. Howard Westover eventually passed away. 
But his family goes on to back him up saying that he was, he was hurt more than anything. The, the uncle that, that informed the authorities because he reaches out to police and he says, look, I have this information from my nephew who passed away making a confession that three of his buddies picked them up and they abducted and killed a woman and dumped her body. And he says that the police didn't seem interested in his information, that they didn't believe this deathbed confession, which truly hurt the uncle because he's like, I'm former law enforcement. I heard this confession and I believed it to be true. And that's the only reason why I'm bringing it to you guys. Gary Westover died in 1998 and the details of this confession are murky. We have the family that says, you know, he told us he gave this detailed confession. It was passed along to law enforcement. And as far as the media goes, that's where the confession sits. But what's interesting is within that confession, Michael Nicolau is one of the individuals that is hinted at being one of the three men that picked up Gary West over that night dun, dun, dun. and made him be a part of this attack. And in fact, the family believes that this confession was in regard to the Barbara Agnew case, the still unsolved ba- Barbara Agnew case. Yeah, makes sense. So they communicated all of this information, not only to the authorities, but to Barbara Agnew's family as well. They stated that because of Gary Westover's health, you know, he's quadriplegic and that he was involved in this, that of course he's not innocent of anything, but they believe that he was simply afraid for his life. And that's why he didn't tell anybody until he was at death's doorstep because one, he didn't have the ability to defend himself against these three other men or the ability to defend his family against these three other men. I think his family lays out a good point of the reason why we should believe this story. And I wish law enforcement would have taken this story way more serious. I would like to know the details of this case because it seems very odd, seems very strange that three men would pick up their, their friend, their wheelchair bound friend and bring him along for something that it, on the surface, from what we do know, it appears that he might not have fully been on board with right. or didn't know what he's going to be involved in. Part of me wonders, Captain, was he used in, in, in more ways than one, but maybe as some kind of ruse or lure to, to, to obtain a victim? Which is pretty sick. Remember, when you go back and you, you look at some of the details of the Barbara Agnew case, we know that her vehicle was found at that rest area. No one's really certain. In fact, they're baffled as to why she would stop so close to her home. Why would we find her vehicle stop so close to her home? We know that it was snowing out that night. I mean, if you're out there looking to procure a victim or get somebody to stop to be a potential victim, a guy in a wheelchair on the side of the road on a snowy night might just get somebody to stop. Barbara Agnew was a nurse, a person that cared cared about helping other people. Well, and she took an oath. It might be her love and her care for her fellow man that, that led to her being tricked into, to stopping that night. Well, and if the confession is true, which I believe it is, I have no reason not to believe him or believe his family. Then you have 
three individuals that are capable of committing any of these crimes all in the same area. Are these crimes connected? And was there one killer on one of the crimes, two killers on a different crime, three killers on, on some of the other crimes? And is that why it's even harder to piece this puzzle together? Because sometimes you have one killer and sometimes you have multiple killers. And do not let the Westover deathbed confession deter you or anyone else from bringing information to the authorities. Because while all of these cases sit very cold at the moment, we are reminded by both the New Hampshire and the Vermont State Police that these are considered active homicide investigations, that if there is a lead, if there's new information, they're going to follow up on it. In the Westover case, we simply do not know the details of that confession. Did, in fact, when the information was provided from the Westover family and made its way to law enforcement, were they able to check very quickly that one of those names or some of those names that were of those men that were named by Westover, that it was proven quickly that they could not have been in the area or that Gary Westover was simply mistaken there. He did, he did have a history of drugs and drug abuse. And so again, we, we don't know the details of that case. So I wouldn't go so quickly out of the way to discredit law enforcement here. Again, if you have any information at all in one or any of these homicide cases that we've discussed here today, or any case that you think may be connected in any way to one of the homicides that we discussed here today, the Vermont State Police and the New Hampshire State Police are still actively seeking leads in all of these cases. Please reach out to them. Seven women stabbed and murdered. A series of murders in the Connecticut River Valley. You suspect it was the work of a serial killer. All were stabbed multiple times. Times. And that's why I'm here, to look for results, to have results, to give those families an answer. I want to thank everybody for another awesome year such an awesome year of support and love from you guys colonel do we have any recommended reading this week we are asking that you check out jane's podcast the invisible tears podcast from trauma to healing that's the invisible tears podcast available everywhere you get podcasts if you don't have time to write that title down right now don't worry because you can find that great title and many many more on our website's recommended page at truecrimegarage.com And we hope you have a great holiday season with your family and friends. We will be doing so and we'll be off next week, but we'll, we'll see you here in the garage next year. And until then, be good, be kind and don't litter.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.